I want to start by saying I love you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. And I love you because I'm commanded to. As brothers and sisters in Christ, I should love you. Because of the love that Christ has shown for me in laying down his life for me. And I hope this morning that we are convinced of this by the end of our time. And my other hope is that you are still contemplating our discussion last week on what it means to abide in Christ. Last week we looked at the beginning of this chapter. Jesus as the true vine. Us as the branches and our life that we get in him. And our Father in heaven is the vine dresser. We don't often think about this role as a vine dresser because it's a word that's foreign to a lot of us. But if you spent time outside, you've been in, in a garden, you know that it is intimate work to be able to prune and to care for something. And I thought about it this morning as I was pruning and cutting my basil, getting ready for lunch. I was thinking, I love you because you're delicious. This is a loving thing. But also reflecting on that's what our Heavenly Father does to us. He prunes us, which may hurt in the moment, but He prunes us for our growth because He loves us so that we can grow in Him and so that we can love one another. Jesus also tells us to abide in Him, this remaining fruit that we bear over time. And this abiding in Christ is done in obedience and in love. And Christ reminds us that apart from Him, we can do nothing. And he called us, and he grafts us in and makes him a branch in this true vine so that we can bear fruit. And that is the fruit that glorifies the Father, that in Christ we bear good fruit that does not fade away. And he tells us at the end of our passage last week that I tell you all these things for your joy, that my joy may be in you. And so all this should result in the joy, complete joy of Christ's joy being in us and our joy being full in him. And so coming off the heels of that, I want to talk about what does that mean for us this morning? What should abiding in Christ do to us? Can you possibly be in Christ and remain unchanged? Can you continually be reminded that the Son of God laid down his life for you, yet still live selfishly and unloving? Can you do that? And I want you to see this morning that his love for the elect and their love for one another is inseparable. We're going to look at the, the, the desires of Jesus and the prayers of Jesus for his saints, the unity that he desires for us, and the reasoning that he gives us for that unity. So this morning, as part of this entire discourse, after they, they, uh, they finish their Passover meal, Jesus now tells his disciples what is essential for them to know as he departs. And as, as the rest of these passages, they're spoken immediately to the disciples for their direct application. But like the rest of this, it applies to us as well, because Jesus reveals how our God deals with his people. And Jesus' loving obedience for the Father is an example for us to be loving and obedient. Love is what drove Christ. And love is what unites us in Christ and unites us to one another. And so this passage is to the eleven, but it is to us as well. 
And so most of our time this morning, since we have a short passage, only a few verses, most of our time this morning is going to be addressing a lot of the concerns and questions that come up with some of these themes in our text. And so if you would, uh, open your Bibles to John chapter 15. Our text this morning is going to focus on 12 through 17, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 9 to give us context. John 15, beginning in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, how humbling it is to be called by your name. What a tall order it is to be told to love like you loved us. How could we ever live up to that? We're told to lay down our lives like you laid down yours. Oh, that is a burden that feels heavy on us, but it is also to be a joy that we are called by the God of love to be people of love, to be rooted in truth. Lord, pray that your word would accomplish its work this morning, that your Holy Spirit would teach and guide and convict and rebuke us where needed. that your word would transform our minds and our hearts and our actions, that we will be people who know you rightly and love you rightly and live in a way that glorifies you rightly, loving you and loving one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the first thing I want to tell you about this passage is that Jesus is a master teacher. Now, we kind of know that already, but there's brilliant argumentation in this passage because he gives them a command, which he's given them before, but then he kind of works backward in his support. So, you know, first he says, love, because I commanded it, and that should be enough. But he says, I command it because you're my friends. But even further, you're my friends because I chose you. So therefore, love ends up back where it begins, and he gives us the basis for this love. Your love is rooted in me laying down my life and calling you friends and choosing you. Therefore, you should love. The love that we have for one another begins and ends with Christ and is rooted in him. And I want to walk through that this morning. Because if Jesus, as I say all the time, if Jesus repeats himself, we should pay attention. Jesus repeats himself in this manner often. And it's for our benefit. If Jesus is concerned with us loving one another, we should probably lean in and pay attention here. 
Beginning in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, we could spend all day going through how John explains love. This gospel of love and this, this gospel of spiritual growth and knowledge of who Christ is is steeped in love. I mean, we all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But in these last few chapters, Jesus digs in and he talks about what that love means. So just to give you a few examples, look at chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Maybe on the same page in your Bibles. A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus connects his love to us and our love for one another. Look at chapter um, 14, verse 23. We spent a lot of time on this. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Love is from Christ. Love is from the Father. Love is obedience. In the beginning of the passage we just read, chapter 15, verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And one more, look at chapter 17, verse 26. Probably turn one page in your Bible. I have made known to them your name, Jesus speaking to the Father here, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me be in them and I in them. What we see in all of these references for love is love of God, love for God, and love for the saints. This is a continual theme, and what unites the body of Christ is the same thing that unites the Trinity. The love that the Father, Son, and Spirit have had before the foundation of the world, our God desires for us. Love of God, love for God, and love for the saints. And we're going to talk about those this morning. And our example for love, how do we know what this love is? Jesus tells us, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. In like manner, look at what I've showed you. Look at how I've served you. I took on flesh and walked among you. I'm about to go to the cross for you as I have loved you. Now, let's not gloss over the you here. Again, Judas has left. He just finished speaking to people who he told to abide in him. He's not speaking to the collective you, to the entire world. He's speaking to you, the church, you, the saints. Judas is gone. You are mine. My church, my true branches, the ones who will bear fruit as I have loved you. And then Jesus goes on to explain the greatest of this love. Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone should lay down his life for his friends. Again, if Jesus repeats himself and he teaches us on love and he tells us what the greatest example of love is, maybe we should lean in here. So let's take some time to consider what Jesus is saying. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The first thing I want to bring to your attention, you, you know all of these words. But I want to, let's talk about how these words fit together. When Jesus says, 
Greater love is no one than this, and someone laid down his life for his friends. This word huper in the Greek, it means for, but it specifically means on behalf of. So this is a particular mention here. He does not say he died for everyone in a universal sense. He does not say, I loved you collectively. My love is the same for everyone. Greater love has no one than he laid down his life on behalf of his friends. We're going to get into friends in just a moment. But this is talking about a particular atonement here. This is talking about a substitutionary act for his beloved. Because this word friends here is another word we need to consider. Because in our culture, we've completely lost the meaning of the word friend. Facebook has ruined the meaning of friend forever. You do not have 1,500 friends. It's not possible. This word means a beloved one. Love someone who you know dearly. So what is a friend? Someone you can sit down across the table from and weep with. Someone who knows how to pray for you. Someone who you can look in, in, in the eye and care for them and they care for, them, and they care for you. You know them and they know you. This is the sense of, of the friend here, not in just in a generic friend sense. And so we, we need to get that. Don't let a 21st century definition of a word determine how we read Scripture. This word means beloved one, someone who is dear to you, not just a passing acquaintance. So Jesus says a greater love has no one than he lays down his life for his friends. Just as in chapter Chapter 10 is the same sense of the good shepherd lays down his life for or on behalf of the sheep. We need to consider that because this is the greatest example. In love, he laid down heavenly glory to take on flesh. In love, he laid down any material comfort or social status to live as a poor servant so that his sheep, his friends, his beloved would be brought back to the fold and reconciled to God. And in love, this was accomplished by him offering up his body to death, to be tortured and abused and to bear the wrath of God for his friends. This is love. And John, in his epistle, tells us this much. 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The connection that Christ has in laying down his life for us is the connection that we have with one another, laying down our lives for the saints. These are inseparable, and these are one is meant to inform and teach the other. And so then we have to ask ourselves, as Jesus commands this, and if John exhorts us to this, will we have to lay down our lives? Literally. Most of us, all of us, probably not. But we have brothers and sisters in Christ in, in the world today who are laying down their, their lives for the name of Christ. Who are going to jail joyfully so that other brothers can go free. They are laying down their lives. But we don't face the, the, the sort of persecution that others face. So what does this look like for us? So I want to start from the ground level. Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses, says this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave his life for me. First thing we need to see, he loved me, gave his life for me. So in a very un-American sense, our lives are not our own. 
the, that first and foremost, they are Christ because he bought them. They are his. My life is his. But if he bought mine, he also bought yours. Our lives have the same owner and the same value. And how can I not sacrifice my time and my comfort for someone Jesus sacrificed his life for? This is what he is telling us. Our lives have value, brothers and sisters in Christ, because he shed his blood for us. If he lays down his very life, I can lay down a little bit of comfort and a little bit of inconvenience for the saints. And so we lay down, we set aside our desire for material comfort and social status for the sake of the saints. We serve and care for one another and teach one another in love, not out of, for the sake of convenience, but sacrificially, the way Christ did. Because we can't forget that our lives of ease and comfort in this world are but a vapor. But we will be with Christ and our brothers and sisters forever. Let's get a head start now. And so I want to give you one insight. There's many different practical ways, and I think this is important, especially in our culture to address. And so I, I want you to help, I want you to understand this. Most marriages struggle and fail because husbands and wives will not lay down their lives for one another. Think about that for a moment. Married people, this is free counseling. Single people, if you desire to be married, pay attention. Because you both must understand this. If husband and wife laid down their life for one another, dying to their own pride, there would be no divorce. I guarantee it. If you lay down your life for one another, you wouldn't seek pleasure in another person. If you lay down your life for, for, for one another, you wouldn't have to be right all the time. If you lay down your life for one another, you wouldn't let the sun go down on your anger. If you lay down your life for one another, you would know that the two become one flesh and you would not hate your own flesh. And so if that person doesn't know that Christ laid down their life for them, how can they lay down their life for you? This is why it's so important that husbands and wives, that we be rooted in the gospel, that first and foremost we are yoked with another believer. And if you are a believer and Christ has laid down your life, his life for you, how could you not lay down your life for your spouse? Greater love has no one than this. And someone should lay down his life for his friends. Who are his friends? Jesus says in verse 14, You are my friends if you do what I command. So his friends are the ones who keep his commands. It's the same sense in verse 10. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. This is not just a one-time obedience. This is a continual act. If you keep doing, if you do this over time, if you do what I command. This is continual. You are my friends if you do what I command. The first person in Scripture to be called a friend of God is Abraham. This is what marks the spiritual seeds of Abraham. Those who do what I command, who trust God and obey him in faith. Now here's one of those things where we need to stop for a moment and do some clarification. Because some people will read this as a causal statement. I'll tell you what I mean by that. This is similar to our conversation in John chapter 10. 
The sheep hear because they are sheep. They don't hear to become sheep. So you cannot read this as a causal statement. If you keep my, uh, excuse me, you are my friends if you do what I command. So if then, the, the, the doing of the commands causes the status. This is a state of being statement. You are my friends if you do what I command. It's the same sense that we looked at last week. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. How do you know that you're my friends? Because you will obey, you will bear fruit, and you will prove to be what you already are, not becoming something that you're not. You will not become disciples by bearing fruit. Disciples will bear fruit because of who they are, because they have been purchased. A branch cannot attach itself to a good vine. A branch only will bear good fruit if it is already attached to a good vine, and you can do nothing without it. This is not a causal statement that speaks of earning. In a theological sense, we are justified by faith. But those he calls, he also justifies. He also sanctifies. The one who has been justified will be sanctified to good works, will work out of the commands of Christ. This is what he's saying here. Work out of your identity. Be who you are. And he tells us how we can do that. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. Call you. When Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, anytime someone changes a name in Scripture, pay attention. Because when you change someone's name, you're speaking by authority, and you're also changing meaning, and you're changing purpose. You think about all of these examples. We see Abraham, Abram to Abraham, Jacob to Israel. We see Simon to Peter, and Paul or Saul to Paul. In each one of these, God is changing their name because he changes their, their, their calling and he expands it. And there's identity in these names. So when Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but friends, we should know what that means. And we should also know that this is a cultural bombshell. Because never in that culture would a servant be called a friend. Never would you receive that upgrade. And this word here in the original language, doulos, is slave. Bond servant. You were, you were bought and purchased and bonded to your owner. And you would stay in that status. There was no upward mobility. So for Jesus to say, you are no longer slaves, but friends, this is a big deal. Now, though we are still bonded, though we still serve, we are no longer slaves. We are no longer servants, but friends. And the yoke of a friend is light of the heavy burden of a slave. And so this call on the life of Jesus' disciples is something very particular. There's intimacy here. You know, you, you will serve me, but now you will serve as a, as a friend and you will serve joyfully. But there's also a call in our life because James talks about this. Look at James chapter 4. It's going to be up on the screen. James 4, 4. These are strong words here. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God. You cannot straddle this fence. If you are a friend of God, if you are a friend of Jesus, by extension, you are an enemy of the world. And it is a sobering reminder of what we're called to. 
Because for many believers, they are content to sing one moment that Jesus is my friend, but desire more so to be friends with the world. We must remember what that means, because being a friend of Christ means that a battle line has been drawn. We now fly the flag of our master. And we are at war with those who fly the flag of his enemy. I'm going to spend a lot more time in that next week because Jesus is preparing his disciples for what it means to be at enmity with the world. You must first know whose you are before you can go into battle. You are my friend. And he says something interesting here. I've called you friends for all that I have heard from the Father I have made known to you. All that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. This is one of those statements that we can just gloss over. But this is deep for us to think about here. In his humanity, Jesus reveals to us all that is necessary for his friends to know in their humanity. In Christ, we lack nothing. All that you need to know, all that the Father has revealed to me, I have revealed to you. There is no need for additional revelation. There is Christ has made every provision for us, everything that we need to know from the Father. Do we need special revelation and a special word from God in every situation? No. Jesus has made it all known, all of it. You need wisdom from God. Search the scriptures. Jesus says, I have made it all known to you. Continue in the scriptures and prayerfully seek godly wisdom in the Holy Spirit, which We looked at a couple weeks ago, and we'll look at it again in chapter 16. We'll teach you and remind you of all things. Jesus called us. Jesus died for us. He sent his spirit to reside in us, and he reveals the Father to us. He will not leave you as ignorant orphans, but he leaves us as disciples, learners. He has revealed it all to us, and we seek the scriptures diligently. We hide them in our hearts that we might not sin against him. He has made it known to us. And don't let popular Christian songs trivialize, trivialize this for you. Jesus calls us friends and reveals this to us. This is incredible. He does not look down to us. He does not condescend to us, but he speaks to us and reveals the mysteries of eternal wisdom through spirit-breathed scriptures. This is incredible. We are no longer slaves but friends and he has revealed who he is and who the father is in his very words so we should pay attention verse 16 you did not choose me but i chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name he may give it to you this is one of those passages where we're going to camp out for a minute This is one of four times in this gospel where Jesus says, I chose you. And so he's following this up with, you are my friends. I'm revealing heavenly wisdom to you, but don't get ahead of yourselves. I'm still sovereign God. And this is the cure for all arrogance and all self-centered thinking. That I, the goat, could possibly choose to be a sheep. That I, the bad branch, could possibly choose to be a good branch. That I, a slave, could ever choose my master. It didn't happen in that culture. It wouldn't happen in this culture. It will never happen. But he says, I chose you. We've got to be honest here. This causes a lot of problems for people. I've heard seminary-educated people, I won't mention what seminary, say that 
Well, we don't really know what this word chose means. Yes, we do. It means elect. It means chose. That's it. I chose you. You did not choose me. Yes, he's speaking to the 11 here. But he is speaking to his disciples everywhere. Because I am the master. You are the servant. No servant has ever put in a job resume to be a slave. Guarantee you that. And he tells them directly, I chose you. I think why people have a problem here is because they want the power of choosing to be with man and not with God. They desire man to be God. They desire to know everything that God knows and put themselves in God's place. And so this rubs against our flesh. And so we must lean in that he is God and we are not. We are not God. We are not God. And so we can rest in his sovereign election. But then also I've had many conversations with you, and this is tough. We must also resist the urge to say, well, am I elect? Is my father elect? Is my friend elect? Is my sister elect? You are not God. Jesus says, I've revealed everything to you that you need to know. Everything the Father has given me, I've given you all you need to know. So if you don't know, you don't need to know. This is not for us to know. This is above our pay grade. We should be able to rest and be still and know that he is God. Because I would argue, if we knew, if everyone walked around with a little tattoo on their forehead, we would no longer share the gospel. We would begin to show partiality. We would not need to lean in the Lord. We would not cry out to him in prayer. We would not intercede for those we love. It would cause us to be complacent and slothful in our relationship with the Lord. But even though we are not to know, we are to rejoice. We are to rejoice that he has called us, that he has chosen us, And I want to rejoice together, so turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read a large chunk this morning, and it is not going to be on screen because I want you to look at it with your eyes. I think far too often in our culture, we we minimize God and we exalt man. And we love the idea of, of a God who can fit into our pocket. But Paul tells us clearly in Ephesians 1, the plan of God. If you don't know where that is, go about five books forward in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Pay attention to all the, the, the language here of God's foreknowledge, his sovereign plan. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is an introduction. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption. Man, that is a beautiful sentence. In love he predestined us for adoption to be brought into his family as sons through Jesus Christ. No longer slaves, not only friends, but sons, so that you may have an inheritance. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why did he choose us? According to the purpose of his will. Two, the praise of his glorious grace. 
so that he will receive the glory and when his grace is revealed in us, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The beloved one is Christ, that in Christ we are his beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The riches of his grace is God's wisdom, is lavished on us. Jesus says, I've made it all known to you. This is the wisdom and insight. Making it known to us the mysteries of his will. What a great mystery that he's revealed to us according to his purpose. His plan, not ours, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is God's plan of recreation, of reconciling all things to himself through Christ. Again, Paul continues to speak more about God's plan in him. We have obtained an inheritance. The sons will receive an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, again, written to the apostles, those first to see him, and then to us. In him, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory? This is the glorious gospel, unveiled the mysteries of eternity, God's will, God's choosing God's desire for his people and the inheritance that we receive in him. This is incredible. So I just want to encourage you, don't dwell on what you don't know. You're not supposed to know everything. But what you do know, rejoice in it. Let's rejoice in what we have in Christ. Rejoice in what scripture has revealed to us. Rejoice in our heavenly inheritance that is imperishable, sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are chosen to be friends, but not just chosen, not just chosen to be frozen. We know that, 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 that phrase, but Jesus kind of puts that to rest here. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit and abide. These two things must go together. Elect from before the foundation of the earth and appointed to bear fruit. You cannot separate these two. You are his, but you must bear fruit. And again, it should not lead us to complacency but lead us to intimacy and joy and that we get to grow and that we get to bear heavenly fruit that that does not pass away. So he says, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. So in our men's ministry, we're going through the spiritual disciplines, and this past month we looked at prayer. So this speaks to our memory verse. Let's see if the guys can help me out again. Psalm 145, 18 said, The Lord is the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. How can we call on him? How can we ask in his name when we call on him in truth? So what is he saying here in the context of our passage? He says, I appointed you to bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. If you love one another as I loved you, you will be given what you ask. 
You who are obedient to Christ's name can ask anything in his name. If you are obedient to Christ's commands, you can ask anything in his name. If you are chosen by me and called friends, you can ask anything. And you who bear abiding fruit, the Father will give you what you ask. The Lord is near to all who call on him, all who call on him in truth. This is our recipe for prayer. Abide in Christ. Keep his commandments. Bear fruit. Rest in that you are his. And you can call on him freely. So many people want the blessings of God and want their prayers to be answered, but want nothing to do with Christ and nothing to do with his word. We must show discernment in that. Verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The same sense we get in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. These things... Jesus last week talked about abiding in him. And what abiding in him should stir within us is joy. The joy of Christ abiding in him forever. And that the Father has sealed us and prunes us. But these things, these things that Jesus just told us, these things I command you so that you love one another. The purpose of knowing that you abide in Christ is for your joy. The purpose of knowing that he is called you and he has chosen you that you might bear fruit is that you love one another again we end up where we began we are chosen in love and we are to be united in love our god is one he desires for us to be one and if you have this type of eternal perspective you will love one another and if we love the lord with all our heart our soul our mind and our strength and we're concerned with pleasing him and obeying him, and abiding him, and finding our pleasure in him, it will naturally pour out into loving the ones that he loves. Because as Jesus told us, there's a great commandment, and the second is like it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. But let's be honest. This is not an easy command. Because one of the hardest things about being a disciple of Christ is the other disciples of Christ. Because, the, because as a disciple, the other disciples are different than us. And they think differently than us sometimes, and they act differently than us, and they speak differently than us, and they do things differently than us. And sometimes that can make things very difficult for us. And they can be very difficult at times. But I hate to break it to you. So are you. And so am I. But we are commanded by the Savior who loves us to love one another as he loved us. If, save, if the Savior can love you and me as wretched and wicked as we are, how can we not love one another? Because if they are valuable enough for Christ to die for and shed his blood for, and it is important enough for him to repeat this again and again, this is essential for us to understand. And if we want to abide in Christ, we must get this. I am so thankful to be a part of a body who understands what it means to love brothers and sisters in Christ and who does that well. This is just an encouragement and a challenge to keep doing that well because until Christ comes again, we're going to step on each other's toes and we're going to uh, rub each other the wrong way. But ultimately, our lives are bought by the same blood. 
We are brothers and sisters for eternity through Christ. And so in the conclusion, I want to jump forward to John's first epistle. Because instead of me giving some pithy conclusion and trying to wrap all this up, John does it perfectly. So if you turn to 1 John, if you go to the back of your Bible, Revelation, I go back three books. But if you understand John's heart, John speaks as an elder. He speaks as a pastor, as someone who cares for the lives of his flock. And John, as Jesus' closest disciple, leans into this theme of love, leans into, leans into this theme of unity. And in 1 John, it is the book of Christian love and unity. If you want to know how am I doing in my Christian walk, read 1 John and see how you line up. This is another large passage, but I think this is good for us. Because John does as he should. And as he taught us, that the gospel is how we understand God's love. And the gospel is how we understand our love for one another. 1 John chapter 4, picking up in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. So when people say God is love, and they just throw this general term around, I know we've talked about this before, John tells us what it means that God is love right here. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that he might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Not that we chose him, but he chose us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. John ties together all of these themes in this great passage. So, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. The love of God is our assurance and to give us confidence for the last day. He continues, Because as he is, so also are we in this world. More on that next week. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he cannot, excuse me, whom he has seen, he has seen, cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Lord, examine our hearts today according to this. Let's pray. God, you are love. And not in some cheap greeting card way. But you are the God who loves in a way that we cannot express and we cannot understand. Because even though you are a righteous judge and you have every 
reason to pour out your judgment on us. You send your Son in grace and mercy and show your love to us that we might have love for one another. What an amazing call it is to be your disciples. Lord, let us hold that calling dearly. Let us be known by our love for one another. Let us be known by the name of Jesus. Let us be known for whose we are. Lord, give us the strength to abide. Give us the patience with one another. Give us the concern for one another. Let us continue to serve the body of Christ as we're serving unto you. Lord, thank you for calling us. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for your plan throughout the ages. And Lord, I just pray for anyone here who does not know you, that they would lean into these words. Not to get caught up and try to put themselves into your mind, but to throw themselves at your mercy and say, I need your love. I need your mercy. I need your grace. Because I cannot choose you. And without you, I can do nothing. Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you. Let us rest in you. Let us take our hope and our peace and our joy in you. And let your love flow out of us because our joy is complete in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.